The following is a sermon from the Edgington Evangelical Presbyterian Church in Taylor Ridge, Illinois. And now let me invite you to take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to Psalm 134. Psalm 134. Um, I would encourage you, especially those of you who have gathered with us here, that, um, that if you're at all concerned about using Pew Bibles, don't forget you can bring your Bible from home, but uh, nevertheless, I don't think that there's a concern for using Pew Bibles, seeing as uh, we're not having multiple services in a row. Uh, so whatever Bible you have, I hope you'll open it with me to Psalm 134. Psalm 134. Uh, it is good to have a record congregation this morning after a number of months. And it's also good to not have to preach to a camera that's right here to be able to look around and see your faces and uh, enjoy the scriptures together. Uh, as you turn to Psalm 134, uh, of course it's obvious to say that uh, we've been on a journey together. Uh, and I'm not just speaking about this quarantine process. We've been on a journey together alongside of ancient Israelite worshipers. That's what we've been doing in studying the Psalms of Ascent. We have been walking in the footsteps of generations of believing Israelites who traveled to Jerusalem to go to Zion, the city of God, and there to worship at the temple. They had such a burning desire to go that they would travel probably many days to go worship at the temple at particular festivals and seasons. I think we, maybe more so than ever, uniquely understand that desire to go, that desire to be gathered with the people of God together, to endure a long season because what is at the end of it is worth it, namely the gathering worship of the people of God. And so we've been following them. We've been following them over the course of 15 Psalms. If you want to actually flip back to Psalm 120, the Psalms of Ascents start there, and they take us on a journey. The Psalms of Ascents begin in a foreign surrounding. Psalm 120, verse 5, locates the Israelite worshipers in a foreign land, in Meshech, in Kedar, in a place where they didn't want to be, and they longed to be somewhere else. And they set out on the way in Psalm 121, lifting their eyes to the hills and knowing that their help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. That's Psalm 121, verse 2. And as they set out, they set out with gladness. Psalm 122, verse 1. I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. And there we will worship the Lord, whom Psalm 125 says is like a mountain that surrounds his people. And as Mount Zion ascends up over the plains of Jerusalem, the Israelite worshipers would go and know that the Lord is like that mountain that surrounds with strength his people. In Psalm 126, we learn to wait patiently on the Lord even through suffering and sorrow because it is oftentimes through suffering and sorrow that we learn the most significant lessons about how to trust the Lord. And on and on we have learned what it looks like to go and wait and worship. We've learned lessons about trusting the Lord and setting our hopes on Him. But we come to Psalm 134 this morning, which is the last of the Psalms of Ascents. 
And what's unique about this is that Psalm 134 is actually something of a departing psalm, which is interesting considering we come to it at a time when we are arriving in so many ways, but Psalm 134 is a departing psalm because in this final psalm of a sense, it's time to go back home for the Israelite worshipers. As we've studied these psalms, uh, I hope you've noticed that we've seen a variety of different kinds of psalms, right? We've seen psalms of praise and lament and intercession. Uh, maybe you remember Psalm 129 was called an imprecatory psalm. It involves praying a curse. There's penitential psalms like Psalm 130. But Psalm 134 is called an antiphonal psalm. Antiphonal. And what that means is that Psalm 134 involves a call and a response there's two groups of people talking to each other. And you'll see the call and response from one group in verses 1 and 2 speaking to another group. And that group then speaks back to them in verse 3. So an antiphonal psalm is a worship psalm of call and response, of speaking and responding. And again, it's in verses 1 and 2 that one group speaks, and then in verses 3 the other group speaks Back. So notice that as we read the text. But first, let's pray and ask God's blessing on the Word. Let's pray. Well, Lord God, we, we open the Scriptures together and we say with David, how I love Your law, how I love Your truth, how I love the Scriptures. And Lord, what a delight it is that together as the people of God, we can open the Bible and say, we believe what this says. And so, Lord, with your word, direct our worship, direct our hearts, illuminate our minds that we might understand what you have given to us here. Illuminate our very lives that we might live in light of what this teaches us. And so, Lord, as your spirit inspired human authors to record these words for us, may that same spirit descend upon this congregation now to illuminate our lives. Lord, bless your word to us now. We pray in the power of Jesus' name. Amen. And now hear the word of God in Psalm 134. Come, bless the Lord. A song of ascents. This is the word of God. Come, bless the Lord, all you servants of the Lord, who stand by night in the house of the Lord. Lift up your hands to the holy place, and bless the Lord. May the Lord bless you from Zion, He who made heaven and earth. Amen. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the Word of God abides forever. Uh, and please do keep your Bible open and be ready because we're going to flip a few places. We're going to do some uh, time travel and history uh, review here so we can understand what Psalm 34 is all about. So, when you go on a trip... If you're like me, um, the anticipation of going there makes the trip there seem like it takes forever, right? And then you get there and time flies by and the return trip home seems to go like that because you're not as anticipatory of getting to a place. The trip home seems so much faster because you have longed to go to this place and next thing you know it's time to go home already again. And if you can identify with that mindset, then you can maybe get inside the minds of these Israelite worshipers who would sing Psalm 134. And that's really what we've been trying to do. We've been working hard to try to understand what it was like 
for those worshipers to sing these particular songs. And in every psalm of ascent, we've been trying to understand what would they be thinking and what would their experience be like. We've been trying to, as it were, walk in the sandals of these Israelite worshipers and, and feel dirty feet on our sandals that are relieved to finally make it to Jerusalem and worship the Lord. And for all the joy of the experience there, it does come to an end and it's time to go home again because these pilgrims didn't live in Jerusalem. They're just visiting. And they have to head back home. And Psalm 134 is sung by the pilgrims who have traveled there and who now realize it's time to go home, but they're singing this song, Psalm 134, to the people who would be staying in Jerusalem. The pilgrims didn't live there. They were headed back home. But for those who were staying, they would sing this song, 134. And the people who were staying there were the priests, the Levitical priests, those people from the tribe of Levi. And before the pilgrims head out, they make one more visit to the temple and they speak, as it were, to the priests again in verse 1. Come, bless the Lord, all you servants of the Lord who stand by night in the house of the Lord. Lift up your hands to the holy place and bless the Lord. Now, we want to get a better sense of, of why they're saying this, so let me take you back a few centuries. Uh, turn back to the fifth book of the Bible in Deuteronomy. Turn back to Deuteronomy chapter 10. And as we go backward a few hundred years, uh, we find some very particular directions that help us understand who it is that these Israelite pilgrims are speaking to when they speak to the servants who are remaining at the temple and they're headed home. In Deuteronomy chapter 10, we find the first specific directions that God gave to the Israelites and the particular tribe of the Levites. Deuteronomy 10 verse 8. Deuteronomy 10 verse 8 says this, At that time the Lord set apart the tribe of Levi to carry the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, to stand before the Lord, to minister to Him, and to bless His name to this day. Therefore, Levi has no portion or inheritance with his brothers. The Lord is his inheritance, as the Lord your God said to him. So the Levites were given this special job. Remember that Ark of the Covenant? It was this particular tribe's responsibility to carry the Ark wherever it went because the Israelites worshipped in that mobile tent called the Tabernacle. And everywhere the Tabernacle went, the Ark went. And it was this particular tribe's job to carry the Ark of the Covenant. It was their job, as Deuteronomy 10 says, to minister to God and to bless His name. They are appointed as priests over the house of God. So, when you go forward into the history of Israel, turn ahead to the book of 1 Chronicles. 1 Chronicles, so go past Samuel and go past First and Second Kings and get to 1 Chronicles. As you go forward in the history of Israel, it was King David that brings the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem. And then eventually the Ark of the Covenant is going to be set up in its permanent home of the temple. And so the Levites don't have to carry the Ark anymore because it's in a fixed place. It's in a permanent place inside the Holy of Holies of the temple. And so even though the Levites don't have to carry the ark anymore, they still have a job to do. And we find it in 1 Chronicles chapter 9. 1 Chronicles 9, and particularly look at verse 33. 1 Chronicles 9, verse 33. 
says this. Now these, the singers, the heads of fathers' houses of Levites, were in the chambers of the temple free from other service, for they were on duty day and night. Continual watch. Verse 34. These were heads of fathers' houses of the Levites according to all their generations' leaders. These lived in Jerusalem. This clan lives in Jerusalem. They don't spread around all of the promised land. They stay in Jerusalem. And their job was to be there in the temple day and night, assisting in worship. So unlike the rest of the Israelites who have to travel as pilgrims to the festivals and the temple, they don't because they stay here in Jerusalem to lead worship there. And one more direction that we want to look at. Uh, flip ahead to chapter 23, 1 Chronicles 23. And we'll look at one more direction that David gives, the King David, as he organizes the Levites. 1 Chronicles 23 and look at verse 25. Chapter 23, verse 25 says, For David said, The Lord, the God of Israel, has given rest to his people, and he dwells in Jerusalem forever. And so the Levites no longer need to carry the tabernacle or any of the other things for its service. Let's skip down to verse 30. Directions, Then they were to stand every morning, thanking and praising the Lord, and likewise at evening. And whenever burnt offerings were offered to the Lord on Sabbaths, new moons, and feast days, according to the number required of them, regularly before the Lord. Thus they were to keep charge of the tent of meeting in the sanctuary and to attend the sons of Aaron, their brothers, for the service of the house of the Lord. So it's the Levitical priest's job to stay there and to worship God in the temple day and night. So as you go back to Psalm 134, recognize that language in the psalm. This notion of day and night is not just some random wording. It's calling back to the reality that there was a particular people that were staying in the temple. These Levites were offering continual worship. So as the pilgrims are getting ready to head back home, before they leave, just before they leave, they say to the Levites, Come, verse 1, bless the Lord, all you servants of the Lord. Lift up your hands to the holy place and bless the Lord. The pilgrims know that they have to go home. But hopefully they come back. They're hoping that they're going to return again. Maybe they will for another festival. Maybe you could imagine that certain pilgrims among the Israelites knew that they were probably never going to come back. That they had reached a certain age perhaps when they couldn't make the journey anymore. And what is so important to them, what is so essential, that God continues to be worshipped by the priests in the temple. They are passionate that the worship of God continues, which is why they call on the Levites to continue to bless the Lord, to continue to lift up your hands, which is a reference to prayer. They know that as they go home, God is still going to be worshipped. So here's why this matters. Earthly congregations will come and go. Earthly gatherings of worship will come and go. They assemble and they depart. And 134 is saying that the worship of Almighty God is eternal. Particular groups of people will gather in particular groups of time, in particular spaces. But what they're doing is an activity that will never end. That's very important. It continues forever because you realize that God isn't just worship when you gather here. 
He's worshipped continually. And I want us to think about that in relationship to the season of life that we have been in as a church. And I want to say very, very clearly, the church was never closed. Because the essential activity of the church never ceased. God was still worshipped. We may have suspended in-person gatherings for worship, but God was still worshipped. And so in that sense, the church does not close because the worship of God must continue. And it's a reminder to us that God always had and will always have a worshiping congregation. Now, of course, there are periods when that congregation, the church, is like a dimly lit candle that's only faintly burning, but God will always have worshipers. God will always have worshipers on earth, but then one day in the new heavens and the new earth, even in periods of quarantine, when it seems like the church is feeble and subject to specific orders of earthly rulers, God always has a congregation. And the lesson that I think that you and I can learn from these Israelite pilgrims is that they knew that this journey that they were going on to go to the temple wasn't about them. It was the journey that they were making. It was the journey that they had plans to make and executed and all the rest. But they knew it wasn't about them. It wasn't about their trip and their experience. The point of the whole thing was that God would be worshipped. And this is an important lesson for the church because the church ultimately doesn't exist for you or I. It exists for God that He would be worshipped. That's why this is not about your preferences and mine. This is not a consumeristic reality that you come to be served. No, you come to serve and bless the name of God because that's what worship is about. And these pilgrims teach us that because they know they have to go. But the most important thing for them is that God would continue to be worshipped because that's the reason why they came in the first place. And so they say to the priests, keep it going. Keep worshipping the Lord. And this is important for us because you and I, as the church of Jesus Christ, need to remember why it is that the worship of God is so essential. The public worship of God is utterly essential to the good of humanity. Because you and I were created to worship. That's what you principally exist for, is to worship God. By nature, you are a worshiper, but by your own nature, you want to worship yourself. By your own nature, you want to worship an idol. By your own nature, you want to worship everything but God. But by grace, you realize that God is the only one who should be worshipped. It is grace that transforms you to be motivated to worship God. Otherwise, you wouldn't be here or you wouldn't have a desire to worship God. By grace, we worship God rightly. Worship orients our lives. It keeps us from being so self-centered and thinking life is all about me. Worship is the ultimate check on that reality that says, no, life isn't about me, it's about God. You can't actually worship if you think that life is about you because you'd be coming to worship yourself. By worship, we realize that we are called to simply stand in awe of the beauty of God and give praise to Him and sing praise to Him and pray to Him. And sometimes what we just need to do is come and delight in His presence and be in awe to think about Him and to think about His mercy 
and to think especially about the gospel of His grace. We worship God because our lives have been purchased by the blood of Jesus, and the only worthy response to that is worship, because you can't pay back what Jesus has done for you. You can't pay it back. All you can simply do is say, my Lord, what grace, I give myself to you in worship. And we love the fact that His mercies are new every morning, don't we? And if His mercies renew themselves every morning, so should our praises renew themselves for His mercy every morning. To be a Christian is to be a worshiper. To realize how essential worship is for your life. And so it is an essential mark of the growing Christian, somebody who considers the worship of God absolutely essential. And so whoever you are, If you are a young child, it is important for you children to realize that worship matters for you because you are forming your little hearts for what you love the most. Worship is important for you students because in periods of life when you are being forced to choose your ultimate commitments, worship is essential for you to do as a teenager to say what you value most. Worship is important for young families because it grounds them in truth. And worship is important for all people and especially the aged saints because it continues as your steadfast testimony that God has been faithful to me over my whole life and I will never cease to say He is my God. Worship matters for all of us. We each need to highly regard the worship of God as these Israelite pilgrims teach us to hold the worship of God as a priority, to come and bless the name of God. Now, there's more here, though. They're departing and they're saying to the Levites, continue night and day in the worship of God. But I want you to notice that verse 3, the Levites are speaking back to the pilgrims. The Levites respond back to the departing pilgrims in verse 3, and they say, verse 3, May the Lord bless you from Zion, He who made heaven and earth. The Levites see them headed back, and they send them out with a blessing. The worshipers have come to bless God in the temple, and they leave with God's blessing on them. Do you see the pattern? Isn't it interesting that worship is actually what you do to come and bless God, but He actually outblesses you in the process? We come to give God praise and give God glory, but then He sends us out with something for ourselves, namely a blessing. If we bless God in our worship, we realize that God also blesses us abundantly in our lives. And we should wonder in times and seasons, if we are not giving God honor, if we're seeing His blessing or not. His blessing comes when we offer a blessing in worship. But I want you to notice that this parting blessing is given by the priests, and it's what we call a benediction, isn't it? It's a parting blessing. They say in verse 3, May the Lord bless you. May the Lord bless you from Zion. A benediction is not a prayer. It is a bestowal. It is a parting word given here by the Levites to the pilgrims. And just as we do now, it's given by the minister to the people. But the important thing about this is 
that it is not ultimately the Levites that are speaking and not ultimately the minister that's speaking, but rather it is God himself speaking the blessing to the people as they go out. The minister, the Levites, just a vehicle, just a means by which God is doing the blessing. Now, this is me, okay, I confess to you, just being a nerdy preacher, all right? But I don't know if you think deeply enough about the benediction, and I want you to think more deeply than you have in the past about what is happening at that moment. It is not just the last thing to do before it's time to go to lunch. (laughs) What happens in the benediction? It is deeply significant that all throughout the scriptures we see that the benediction is pronounced with outstretched hands to represent the wideness of God's mercy, the wideness of his kindness upon his people as God speaks a word to them, and as the people are blessed on the way out, in verse 3, may the Lord bless you from Zion, and as you receive the benediction and then go out, this is what's happening. It is as if God is saying, go. Go out into the world. Go back to your homes, Go back to your troubles. Go back to your difficulties. Go back to your sorrows, and I will go with you. You don't go alone. I go before you to watch over you. I go next to you to give you peace. I go behind you to protect you. Go, and I go with you, is what God is saying. And the Levites speak this word to the pilgrims, and God is saying to us when we gather, Just as the pilgrims gathered, so we gather, and then God sends us out to say, until we gather again, I will go with you and protect you, that I will be your God and you will be my people. I will lay my hand upon you and bless you and keep you. I don't know about you, but I need to know that God is with me. And the benediction is like that seal that says, I am surely with you, says your God. And that's why so often, sometimes, the benediction is received by the people of God with outstretched arms. Yes, Lord, come with me as I go, because I need you to watch over me. And so these pilgrims are headed home, home to Jerusalem, back where they came from. And you and I are going to go back to where we came from in just a bit. But in a greater sense, the journey homeward is more than just a journey to our house, isn't it? Because you and I as Christian believers are headed homeward to that home that the Lord Jesus says he prepared for us in John 14. That I'm going to go and prepare a place for you and I'm going to come again and take you there. Where you and I can be together forever. And you know where that is. It's at the right hand of God the Father Almighty where Jesus is right now before the Father's throne. It's all of its glory. And that is the blessing that he speaks to us as we go out. That's what it means to be blessed, in verse 3, from Zion. May the Lord bless you from Zion. Because where is Zion? Zion is where God dwells. 
In the Old Testament, it was a particular city, but as the story of God's salvation advances, this understanding grows to see Zion not just as a patch of land in the Middle East, but Zion rather represents the place in which God dwells with His people in His fullness. Ultimately, the new heavens and new earth which you and I are journeying toward. You see, when you come and worship here, and for as much as I love to worship in this particular sanctuary, You are doing more than just coming here, you understand. You are coming spiritually to the glory of Zion and the God's own presence where you get a glimpse of that heavenly city that the book of Hebrews speaks about when it says this, that you have come to Mount Zion to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to the innumerable angels in festal gathering and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. And you have come to God, the judge of all, and to the spirit of the righteous made perfect. And you have come to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant. You see, when when you as a Christian believer realize that this worship business is more than just a part of the routine of your life, although it's a good thing for it to be a part of the routine of your life, you realize that you are participating in the glory of heaven, descending upon the congregation and then bringing us up spiritually to witness the beauties of God and to sing His praises. And Psalm 134 is saying, this is ours. This is ours in Christ together as the people of God. And that's why worship is so central for our lives. To come and bless God And then be blessed by Him so that we can be sent out of Him to live for His glory. I want to say to you very plainly, there is no higher end that you have been created for than this. And so take great delight in it. Amen. We've had a pattern to sing the Psalms and we're going to continue that, our last Psalm of Ascent. Uh, Would you please stand as we sing together Psalm 134 to the tune of Nettleton, which is the familiar hymn, Come Thou Fount. Let's sing together. God, we love to give you worship and praise, and so receive it from us in spirit and truth. We bless your name, and so, Lord God, we pray your blessing upon us 
Receive our worship now, Lord, to your glory and our joy, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to today's sermon. If you would like more information about our church or its ministries, please visit edgingtonepc.org. May God bless and keep you.